Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Poison and Pestilence podcast, Survive to Fight with Gareth Davies. So here at Poisons and Pestilence HQ, we're always eager to find new ways to explore the dark, weird and esoteric history of chemical and biological weapons of warfare. And by we, I of course mean me, in my shed. As part of this quest, I have been bothering people on social media to provide me with introductions to these issues from different professional and technical perspectives. And it has worked. In this episode, I'm joined by Gareth Davies, who is going to discuss his experiences in dealing with chemical and biological weapon defence within the UK military. Gareth is also something of a military history buff and unrepentant tank addict, with his first book on tanks in the latter part of World War I being published with Helan next year. Gareth, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming along. Um, to get us started, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a, of a biography and we can go from there. Brett, thank you very much for, for asking me along. I was a soldier for many years, and in, in 1991, 31 years ago today, we just finished the grand offensive of uh, Op Granby, uh, the first Gulf War, as it's now known. And I had been a soldier for a couple of years before that, so back into the Cold War against the Soviet threat, then against Saddam Hussein's forces, where there was, in both cases, um, a very real threat of WMD. Since then... Uh, some other bits of soldiering I did, but back into the CBRN world, as it became in 99, when I set up the first squadron within the what was then the joint NBC regiment, became the CBRN regiment, uh, and then spent a couple of years in the MOD dealing with CBRN issues. In, in 2003, called from a, a staff job to go and uh, help with the NBC regiment in Iraq. Uh, and then a bit later in life, um, just as I was leaving the regular army, did some work on some CBRN doctrine, and I've done a couple of uh, study three bits of work since leaving the army on CBRN. So um, 30 plus years of, of CBRN, WMD, NBC and the British Army. Great stuff. Um, so we thought in this show uh, we'd work through your sort of Cold War experiences um, of chemical and biological defence. And then from there, potentially we can look into how this fed into preparations for the first Gulf War. So before we get into all that, perhaps it makes sense to talk a little bit about the kind of basic aspects of, of chemical and biological weapons and defence against them, um, which I assume have changed to some extent uh, during that 30-year period. The physics of nuclear warfare and, and radiation and the chemistry and the biology of, of, of chem and bioweapons that hasn't really changed. Yes, some people have developed weapons that are slightly different to the ones that we were facing 30 years ago. Uh, but that's why I guess I have been able to be involved in it over the years, because the science and how the, how the agents act and therefore how we protect against them in general terms, be physical protection, uh, the medical protection, uh, the detection and then the decontamination, th those haven't really changed. Yes, there have been advances and there have been significant advances, but the, the overall uh, way of dealing with it 
hasn't really changed. And so that gives someone like me some, some, some advantage. Whereas people coming in to the army more recently, that awful cycle of violence they were having to deal with in Iraq and Afghanistan, to then find themselves back in, I won't call it a reset, but, but something that is perhaps very different to what they were doing in the early 10s, um, having to learn it from scratch. And, and I don't think we should underestimate that. I certainly wouldn't criticise uh, anybody in the armed forces today whose knowledge of CBRN defence is, is somewhat limited because they haven't had to deal with it. But yes, going back to the Cold War, it was it was very much part of the threat. I was, as a young officer, commanding a troop of tanks. Uh, we were sat in eastern West Germany. Uh, I was in a place called Hildesheim. It was about 15 miles, something like that, from the inner German border. And so there was a there were there were sort of a number of aspects. There. First of all, the locals knew that the, the the Soviets, the Russians, were the other side of that border. Uh, and there was, to some extent, an understanding of why we would be there. And for us, the, the threat from Third Shock Army was the one we were facing and the various elements of it, Second Guards, Tank Division, I think, and, and various motor rifle regiments. We knew that. We knew the, the, the order of battle. We didn't know the personalities. I had no idea who the divisional and army commanders were. But we knew that. And we, 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 when we went on exercise, whether it be in North Germany or when we went on exercise in Canada, the threat, the, the opposing force, the enemy we were fighting was the Third Shock Army. So it was a real enemy. It wasn't an invented organisation, the, the Denovians or the, or the, I can't remember the names we've used subsequently. It was a real enemy because there was a genuine threat. It was receding, I accept. And, and then the Cold War came down. But so as part of that, we trained in conventional warfare and we trained to protect ourselves from nuclear and chemical weapons. The bio wasn't really an issue. We didn't know anything about that. And the radiation side of life was, was part of the nuclear. It was a, I was about to say, it was a fallout from that, no pun intended. So, um, <laughs> so we went from sort of N, N, small b, C, to CBRN. Well, it's the N and the C we were dealing with. And it was more the, the C that was sort of drummed into us. Immediate action must be fast and automatic. Close your eyes and stop breathing. Push back the hood, put on your respirator, and shout, gas, gas, gas. It's quite interesting to, to look at how we've changed philosophically, I think, the forces. We had a thing called Survive to Fight, a booklet. It was, it was, um, it was half A4, which is A5, isn't it? Yes, A5 sort of sized. But, but landscape um, in a sort of plastic folder. And it was sort of waterproof pages. And it was an idiot's guide, idiot describing me, the person reading it, uh, guide to how to deal with NBC when it is used against you. And so we had this survive to fight. And what that basically meant was survive the initial event long enough that you could go bang with your rifle, your tank gun, your artillery piece to kill some Russians before they overran your position at that level. So it wasn't survive and fight as the philosophy has become now. It was survive to fight. Survive long enough to fire your rifle. And we spent most of our time looking at the threat from chemical weapons. Chemical warfare can kill 
seriously injure or incapacitate. These agents can be employed in liquid, aerosol or vapor form and can be delivered by shells, bombs, mines, missiles and grenades or sprayed from low-flying aircraft. There are five types of chemical agents. Nerve agents, blood agents, choking agents, blister agents, and incapacitating agents. The chief purpose of the first three is to kill. Blister agents may also cause death, but their main object is to damage the body both inside and outside. This can be short-term, long-term, or permanent. Incapacitating agents are intended to put you out of action without causing permanent damage. The traditional way, well, there are a number of ways in which you can categorize chemical weapons, as you know. Um, we could look at the persistency, how long does it last, so non-persistent versus persistent, and as a sort of doctrinal Soviet way of looking at that. So, for example, non-persistent weapons, which could be a nerve agent, but probably going to be something like hydrogen cyanide, a, a blood agent. I think the thing, thinking then was that the, the Soviets would use those weapons ahead of an attack. So they would force us. First of all, they would have some impact on us. They would kill some people. They would injure some people. But the real theory is they would force us to put our gas masks on our respirators. And it's harder to operate a weapon system if you've got your gas mask on than without one on. And so um, that was part of the, the use of a non-persistent. But they would then follow that up with an attack. So by the time the, the Soviets got there, hopefully it's all gone. And, and I think in sort of persistency terms, hydrogen cyanide is a, a blood agent, is, is, is lighter than air, it's a gas. I think some of the other sort of non-persistent agents, some of the, the nerve agents, which could be, there's two types, aren't there, G and V, the, the sort yeah. of G, GB and was, was sort of petrol, I think we used to think of it. So on a hot day, it would go away quite quickly. GD was was perhaps a sort of a, a what's that kind of oil, sort of sewing machine oil. That meant you were probably about to be attacked if it was a non-persistent agent. Knowing it was a non-persistent agent versus a persistent one was important for two reasons. One, to know that it's probably going to be gone soon, so you can take some of your protective measures off. But two, you're probably about to be attacked. So just talk me through quickly what you mean by a persistent chemical warfare agent and what they were used for. They were used as area denial, threw yes. that around somewhere, dump a whole load, whether it be an airfield or a logistic base or, or just a, a defile um, or a piece of ground that we might want to move over by bunging something persistent down. The chances are we would be less inclined to go into that area. Uh, and I think that would be absolutely right and proper. Were we about to go and charge through uh, an area that was dripping with 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 thick and vx probably not so we had the lowest level we had a thing called three color detector paper five centimeters by eight centimeters something like that which had a sticky back to it and you'd stuck it on your mbc suit your noddy suit if it got a drop of chemical agent on it it would turn blue i think that was only nerve i can't remember if mustard did anything like that. then there was a thing called three color detector paper which wasn't sticky and was only issued to commanders. And you could use that. You could sort of tie it onto a stick or something and prod around. And that would detect between H, so which is mustard, G-nerve, which is generally non-persistent, 
but we can send or v nerve and i think it was a, a red yellow red amber green type color coding on that i may have got that slightly wrong i think three color probably still exists um h can i make a plea to, to everybody about mustard sure mustard gas isn't a gas <laughs> and, and 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 i'm sorry that's that might sound awfully pedantic and hopefully it'll be the only pedantic uh, point i make um on, on this uh, chat but um it, it's not it's it's I don't know, it's a bit like diesel it's a liquid which 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 then creates a vapor and so it's it's really not a gas it's the liquid attacking you that does the problem and as i understood it um part of the reason so like eparite which came at the end of the first world war yeah. was was in, in theory as i i i've not got the, the toxicology front of me but in theory would have been more dangerous than mustard but it didn't have the right um, kind of physics behind it it didn't stick around and has they worked out that actually you could modify mustard mixes to make them stickier and more persistent yeah i mean it goes back to what we were talking about the, the use of non-persistent versus persistent what is the aim of the chemical weapon that you're throwing at your uh, opposition if you want to stop people going to an area yes you want to damage them you want to kill them you want to injure them but 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 if you want to kill people, actually, high explosives, probably a lot easier. It's like the Scud missile, and I'm sure we'll talk about these later. The Scud missile that is fired with a chemical warhead that lands on your headquarters. Actually, is it going to kill more people than the Scud missile with high explosive that lands on your headquarters? Probably not, because yeah. you've taken a lot of the bang out to put the chemical in. And by throwing the chemical around, you make yourself a pariah in contravention of all those um um, legal conventions so so why not stick to high explosives so th it's not the it's not the killing per se it's the it's the damaging it's the it's the causing casualties which clog up your uh, evacuation chain and if you've got a chemical casualty that really does clog it up or you're forcing your opponent to put his gas mask on his noddy suit his gloves you know wearing thick marigolds trying to operate a weapon system is much harder um you you can't really eat and drink yes we had a drinking tube and you could there's a drill you can do to, to decontaminate to eat but um it's it makes life a lot harder just doing daily activity like go, going for a pee is harder when you're wearing this just because you want to undo things and it doesn't have zips and, and, and so on so it messes you around if you're in that state of preparedness for being attacked. So it's a psychological effect. There's a practical impact on people, making it harder for them to do stuff, including shooting at you. And then there's the, the fact that it does massively impact on the, the logistic chain or the medical chain. So how would you uh, know that you'd been attacked by an agent in the field? I assume by this stage in the Cold War, there was quite a complex uh, infrastructure in place. Absolutely. And, and, and there are a couple of key indicators. Um, clearly, at the higher level, there would have been people looking for the outloading of chemical shells from a, a chemical um, shell factory via a chemical shell storage area, etc. cetera. Uh, but the one for us as sort of combat troops was the um, BRDM RKH. That vehicle. The, the Soviets had these, I mean, they're pretty old technology BRDMs uh, and the little armoured cars, uh, okay. four wheeled armoured cars, uh, two or three people in them. And uh, the RKH version, and, and I used to know what the, the RKH, uh, the K stands for chemical something. Or other. I think the R stands for radiation. They're, they're, they're chemical and, and now nuclear survey vehicles. 
So uh, they would um, they were able to detect chemical outside of their vehicle, and they had an automatic marking system, flags, basically flags on a one meter cloth flag on a one meter um, stick, which they could fire into the ground from the back of the vehicle without coming out of it. And so we would look for these. I mean, we didn't actually do them for real, but on exercises, they were a, a, there were lots of signature equipment, but these were a signature equipment. They were um, high priority targets or something like that. And so if you saw the BRDM RKH quite a long way forward, and I think they were with divisional recce and regimental recce off the top of my head. If you saw them, you went, OK, there's a likelihood. Now, I don't I can't remember whether it was a standard grouping for a BRDM RKH to go with every yeah. Um, divisional wreck I, 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 I don't think it was, but, but I'm willing to be proven wrong on that. Um, so they were a signature equipment. And so that was a, a, an indicator something might happen. Um, what did we do about it? Well, we probably didn't do anything because we were probably in our NBC suit already. We'd probably have chemical detectors out when we were static. We had a thing called the NIAD, the nerve agent immobilized enzyme detector which had some wet reagents in i mean it's a big box it's a a, a suitcase size thing people were trained on it I, with the battery was that to do with the airflow i wasn't doing keeping it at a set temperature if it was a biological agent i imagine it was a i think that the the the, the, the battery turned a pump it's a particularly nerdy thing but we talked about this uh, in the last special because we were talking about some of the air detectors that were, were being used but so basically we assume that was a uh, you had, if it was enzyme based, it would have been to detect the nerve agent. As I forget the technical side of it, but that makes complete sense. So that whole Cold War experience, of course, was was there and was deeply entrenched in the British Army's understanding of the nature of conflict. It had been preparing and rehearsing for use of chemical weapons against it throughout much of the Cold War in European theatres. But of course, the the world was changing by the late. 1980s uh, as you go into the kind of 1990s and I guess that's epitomized uh, by the the Iran-Iraq war and what followed. Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers Iraq and Iran we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. So um, 1989, the wall comes down. Uh, I was on a course in, in the UK, so I, I wasn't there for the, the celebrations or the initial bits of, of tourism. Um, 1990, we certainly, um, I think it was in 1990, went over to East Germany, to Magdeburg, to the headquarters of the Third Army, just to see where the, the, the enemy were still. I mean, they were still in the barracks. And it was in the summer of 1990. We were on exercise in, in Salto, and I suspect we were still fighting a, an enemy that was based on group of Soviet forces, GSFG, you know, Third Shock Army as, as our enemy at that stage, because whilst the wall had come down, they were still kind of there. <laughs> we hadn't formed a new uh, enemy. We were on exercise, and that's when we heard about the, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq. Then a bit later on that summer, went on exercise to Canada, 
again, we were fighting what was a traditional Soviet-style motor rifle tank-based uh, enemy. And during that deployment, that's when I think the 7th Brigade were stood up and off they went to the Gulf. And a number of people from my regiment, 1RTR, uh, went off to um, regiments in 7th Brigade and 7th Brigade headquarters. A bit later in the year, uh, in 1990, it was decided that we were going to send 4th Brigade, 4th Armoured Brigade as well. And a number of soldiers and officers, including me, went again off to Fort Brigade headquarters and to the units in Fort Brigade. And I went off with one other to the 14th, 20th Hussars, who are based in Munster, a Challenger Regiment, the Challenger Regiment in 4th Armoured Brigade. And, and off we went. I remember the training for the Gulf. I, I was Fort Brigade, so we were doing our training in December. And I remember standing on the ranges in Senlaga, firing a, a 66 millimetre heat anti-tank, a bazooka, an anti-tank rocket, handheld, shoulder launch thing, and, and, and the real ones, not, not a practice version. Uh, in the freezing cold, thinking, hold on, we're about to go off to war in the, the, the desert. Where does that fit in? In terms of NBC defence, I think we, that stage, were, were relatively clear that there wasn't much of an end threat. And we, and we didn't talk much about the N when, when I was talking in Germany. The N was, was, was further down the priority list because when it got to the nuclear bit, it was sort of heading to the N. Um, whilst we were expecting tactical nuclear weapons from the Soviets, um, we knew that if you were caught in the over, you lie down, you wait for the one blast to go past, you wait for the other blast to go past, and then you just essentially hide. And, and, and you hide in a tank or you hide in a hole in the ground. Uh, because that's the best way to avoid radiation. Put something uh, between you and the radiation for alpha. It could be some paper for, for beta and gamma. You need something thicker. And so actually trundling around in a tank was probably okay until you needed to get out. So I've digressed slightly. So we were in the training phase for deploying to, to Saudi Arabia. And we certainly had lectures, I remember, uh, on chemical warfare defense. And we made sure that our respirators our gas masks all fit so we went in 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 the gas chamber as it was known and you know, we all got given brand new respirator filters we used to use training filters in germany so we got a brand new filter plus a spare we got given our combo pen so atropine one of the ways of any immediate ways of dealing with uh, nerve agent poisoning is injection of atropine i mean it's it, it, as people who have um allergies you know for uh, dealing with an um, anaphylactic shock. It's uh, the EpiPen. It's, it's something very similar. Bang it on your thigh and the needle comes out automatically and squirts some, some atropine in. Uh, we got given those, which were for real. We got given the peridostigmine bromide, the nerve agent pretreatment set, NAPS, which none of us had really seen before because we talked about them. But, you know, they're, they're 28 blister uh, tablets in a blister pack in a little plastic insert i think i probably got one of the plastic inserts somewhere and and what we found was when you put all this into your respirator have a sec actually it didn't really fit that well and, and we'd never tried to get it all in there so it was getting used to the real stuff and, and so if one wants a training head train with the real equipment not not stuff that's not the same size so we we were aware of it but we were going through our training getting the kit ready it was all a bit of a rush i don't mean that in a negative way it was it was done at pace at speed uh, and we got suddenly got told right you can have three days to yourselves you need to be back in Munster on this day and it was december it was before christmas early december and it was snowing great chum of mine and i were from one rtr we're with the 14th 20th and he suddenly said come on we're, we're going home for, for three days so we jumped in his his mgb gt classic officer's car and we we hurtled down the autobahn in the snow 
the, the slow lane, lane one, was, was clear of snow. The outside lane, two-lane autobahn, was, was not. Um, so we slid most of our way. We, we eventually got a ferry. There was a storm. Anyway, it was one of those. But we spent most of the journey trying to work out how we would stay alive on the journey, uh, avoiding um, German and Belgian trucks so they wouldn't run us over. And then the hassle of trying to find a ferry, having to try from Calais to Dunkirk to catch the last ferry out before the storm closed everything down. So we didn't really consider it. But on the way back from, from the UK to Germany, Johnny and I did sort of, in passing, discuss, it's a bit serious, this, isn't it? You know, do you think we're going to die? And, and we did touch on chemical weapons. He said, they're quite horrible, aren't they? And he said, yeah, they are quite horrible. And we had this discussion because we've been taught as part of our training in the Cold War and, and now as part of going to the Gulf to, to recognise the symptoms of nerve agent uh, poisoning. And there were three. There were the initial, later and then deadly symptoms. And I can remember the mnemonics still. RTPD, HDDE and NIMS. RTPD was probably something. Running nose, tightness of chest, pinpointed pupils. And I think the D was disorientation. But again, might be wrong. HGD, headache, dizziness, can't remember what the other two are. And the final ones were nausea and vomiting, involuntary muscle spasms, involuntary urination and defecation, muscle spasms, and S for stoppage of breathing. It was the, it is the classic uh, writhing around, foaming at the mouth, stuff coming out of you, death throes. And, and, and we'd all been aware of that. It's quite grisly. And there was that moment and there's that moment of, no, hold on, I've got a respirator, gas mask, I've got two canisters, I've got an NBC suit, etc. You know, we, we can deal with this. So there was a bit of discussion amongst us. But again, I think I think a lot of the concern was, yeah, he's also got some missiles and some rockets and some some artillery and, 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 and lots of men with AKs that could kill us. So in the greater scheme of things, um, it wasn't bad. But then, of course... Some wise crap go, well, he has used chemical weapons before. And I can remember as a teenager heading off to university, some of the scenes from the Iran-Iraq war. And I can vividly remember mustard being used and seeing some of the injuries in passing. And, and there was quite a lot on the BBC News. I mean, I think 83. So one year after the, 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 the Falklands war, there is Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons against Iranian forces. He certainly used nerve in the mid-80s as part of his war against Iran. And then the famous one, 88, Halabja. I don't know, I don't remember hearing about Halabja at the time. Did I know about Halabja in 1990, 1991? I don't know if I did. I don't know if I heard about that later, but some people will have heard of Halabja. So I don't want to get into dodgy dossiers and WMDs and all of that 2003. But I think people were aware because he had used it. And some of us growing up as children had known the Iraqi armed forces had some chemical weapons. And therefore, it, it was, was not a great step, a leap of logic to say he might use them against us. So there was that element of fear because fear of the unknown. But I think you get fearful going to war anyway. I, I couldn't say how much was about chemical weapons how much wasn't but there was certainly awareness that he had them but the counter we were well trained back end of cold war as i say we we had that in theory deep deep vein of training and therefore ex experience of, of of operating in a chemical environment protecting ourselves and operating in a chemical environment 
we had the various uh, protective measures. NBC suits are very good. We'd had them explained to us because they have the charcoal inside. They have a sort of water repellent. It's not waterproof, water repellent outside, which spreads anything out, which allows it to evaporate. They've got charcoal in the inside, which stops it coming in. The, the, the gas mask, the respirator, was relatively new. We, the S10, I think it was, it had only come in a, a few years before. And it had a drinking, drinking straw, so you could you know, put your water bottle on and, 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 and suck up through a straw. So it, it was much improved on the old one. We had belief in it. We had the canisters. We knew how to change them. We practiced it. We had atropine. We knew the difference between nerve agent poisoning symptoms, pinpointed pupils, and atropine poisoning, dilated pupils. I hope I've got that right. I mean, there's, there's always a chance I've got that the wrong way around. But, um, and there was a case where one poor lad did actually accidentally, because he thought he needed to inject himself with, with atropine in the Gulf. But, but the pupil reaction was enough for the medics to be able to deal with atropine poisoning, because atropine poisoning is a real thing as well. The constriction and dilation is also confusing because in the eye, it's the, the constriction of the muscles which cause the dilation, as I understand it. <laughs> so it, it's, it's the ones I always get those two confused. So we focused uh, so far on chemical weapons, which of course makes sense because these were a, a preoccupation at the time. However, I assume there was also some concern uh, about the use of biological agents. Uh, I wondered if you could go into a bit more detail about that. We felt we're relatively protected. We had we had the gear, and back then I didn't really know much about biological warfare. I became, I don't want to sound arrogant, an expert on defending against biological warfare from sort of 99 to, to 2002. But back then I didn't really know much about it other than there were bacteria and viruses um, and the rough difference between the two, and uh, that actually a lot of normal sanitation practices would be really helpful. Um, hands face space perhaps even uh, would have been useful to to, to, to counter um, any uh, certainly from bacteria and to some viruses we, we were given inoculations we had plague and anthrax inoculations uh, I remember getting one in one arm and one in the other arm at the same time which was a sort of oh thanks for that so I suppose this might have extended to agents which had a more persistent effect uh, such as anthrax for example yeah i think i think to some extent that is right i mean i mean anthrax the spores last for ages I mean, years and years and years and so there is a, a residual hazard so as an area denial weapon or even pretending it was anthrax there, there is an element of you could use it for that purpose we frontline forces we, we had a thing called biological agent treatment sets bats I think they were probably cipro, ciprofloxacin or something, amoxicillin or, or something like that. They were strong antibiotics that came. I mean, the, the, the only concern I think we had from bats is that they look quite big, each individual tablet. And there was an element of how on earth am I going to swallow that? But I think that probably was the limit of our concern about biological weapons. Now, I know that some biological detection systems were quickly fielded by Portendown scientists and run by a, a, a small team of scientists and, and, and soldiers working together. That's great. So what I think is really interesting is the fact that obviously the Cold War operational experiences fed into experiences in 1991. I guess my question then is to think is thinking about operate more operational terms. Do you think lessons were learned 
in that conflict in terms of deployment, in terms of preparedness and CBLN and and those sorts of things? I think we came back in, in, in 91 confident of our ability to deal with an aggressor such as the Iraqi armed forces and, and as Hannah Hussein's forces conventionally and to protect ourselves against chemical weapons. And we could operate, not just survive to operate, survive and operate. We could operate within the threat of chemical weapons. We, we never have the news against us. There are some accounts of the U.S., forces u.s marines having had various chemical agents used against them in, in 91 but we didn't have them used against us so so i think there was a confidence but but then as is often the case in the army and i certainly don't blame the army in any way shape or form for this the balkans kicks off in 92 and the back end of 18 uh, back end of 92 i think it was we send the cheshires with bob stewart as commanding officer off and we have the first man killed wayne edwards who's actually a welsh fusilier on attachment and um, we're into that peacekeeping, peace enforcement activity. Kosovo happens, and then a bit of stuff in North Macedonia. So we're very much focused on the Balkans, where there was a toxic industrial hazard threat. So this term, the TIH or TIC, toxic industrial chemical, this term comes into the uh, vernacular, it comes in. And we're more worried about basically a chemical factory. And, and I don't mean a chemical weapons factory, a chemical factory, a pharmaceutical factory something happening to that and British soldiers, British soldiers becoming ill, injured, damaged, killed. Another term enters, rotor, release other than attack. And so the, the large scale, high intensity warfare threat of chemical weapons disappears. And it doesn't raise its head again in the wider army until 2003. And the other thing that happens is in Defence Review of 1998, it's decided to form this joint ABC regiment, which capability-wise is a sensible move, but it, it's bringing together, um, it brings together a number of bits of kit, capabilities, assets, whatever we call them, that, that have existed for a while. And I think that added to the army not, I won't say not taking CBRN seriously, that's unfair, but, but not worrying about it because the threat had gone away. The operations they were focused on, Balkans, did not involve this CBRN threat. Oh, and we had a regiment now that could do the CBRN defence. And it wasn't until 2002, as we were planning for 2003, that I'm back in the CBRN world and had been for a while and, and, and actually did a couple of roadshows, one to 16 Air Assault Brigade, the Paras, um, up in Colchester. And they were taking it very seriously. They, by their own admission, say they've been focused on light forces stuff for such a long time. They, they hadn't looked at, they passed their annual test. They've been in the gas chamber. They'd done all the mandatory bare minimum. Again, not a criticism. And they wanted to know more. And they had, they had a good approach to it. They want to know more. They were worried, but they wanted to have some pragmatic advice. They didn't want, you're all going to die. You have to wear your gas mask the whole time. They wanted to, to get some information so they could make some proper risk-based assessments. And that leads me to, if I may, another point about risk-based assessments. We accept casualties from conventional weapons in a way that we perhaps don't accept casualties from chemical weapons. We have some sort of graduated levels of protection, including just getting out of your trench and attacking an enemy with, 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 with your rifle in your hand and, and, and a machine gun supporting you, and, and you might end up getting killed 
sadly, as, 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 as men and women did in Iraq and Afghanistan, in that sort of style. But with chemical weapons, with defending against chemical weapons, certainly in 91, and more recently, we, we, it was an all or nothing uh, approach. We, we got into this habit of putting all the kit on. We theoretically had a graduated response, but it wasn't perhaps as deep into our it's like knowledge. I don't think we understood it. So, but we we perhaps lost. That was an area where I think we 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 had slightly lost some of the lessons from from Cold War nineteen ninety one had perhaps been lost a little bit. Um, one thing that comes out as well, listening to you, and also in some of the other stuff I've read that talk about, it's always been iterative. There's always been learning and operational change. It's often been quite quick, and that's in both use of and defence against. And that's it for this special episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue our antisocial history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare. All right, take care. Take care, Brett. Bye Thanks bye. for your time. So as I understand it then, uh, chemical warfare was the primary concern, um, but I seem to recall there are at least some hypothetical concerns about the threat posed by biological warfare agents. Um, to those on the battlefield. Um, 